Good morning. As we uh, continue our study in, uh, the, uh, on the subject of the Spirit, I'd have you turn in your bulletins, actually, to pages 7 and 8, where you'll find three passages. I've grouped them together for your convenience, uh, because we'll be looking at each one of them. We'll primarily spend our time in the first passage in Romans 5, but then we'll uh, touch on Romans 8 and Ephesians 3 uh, to tie them in with what we uh, teach from uh, Romans chapter 5. Begin with, uh, let's just read first Romans 5, and then we'll read the others a bit later. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood... Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of God. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would... Bless us and open up our hearts that we might believe all the more in what you have done for us in Christ Jesus and that it might affect continually every aspect of our lives before you. Oh, bless us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you happen to be visiting or perhaps exploring Christianity, you might think if you've heard about the doctrine of the Trinity, that is, that we believe there are three persons in one God, that we would be in, kind of embarrassed by that fact. That, that might be something that uh, we believers would say, yeah, I, I know it's, it's kind of weird, you know, he's three and he's one, three and one. I mean, it's kind of strange, but uh, what are you going to do? I mean, it's what it teaches, so we got to teach that, you know, almost a Kind of, maybe you felt that sometimes if you're, as you're explaining that to other people. Kind of, let's don't talk about that yet because it's kind of hard to talk about. However, this for us really is the great beauty of, of the Bible and of really the universe, but the whole world. That God is a God of love before he made the world. That God exists in relationship before he made the world. That there is family in God. And this, we think, is at the root of our whole being as, as, as human beings. Because we're made in the image of this God. And that's why relationship is so critical to humanity. And it's interesting, just among 
unbelievers, among people out there, because they're made in God's image, even though they may reject God, they still are, they, they still recognize the critical importance of love. And they talk about it in pretty profound ways. Uh, for instance, this one where Stephanie Perkins writes uh, concerning this relationship, for the two of us, home isn't a place. It's a person. We are finally home. Or another quote, love never dies a natural death. It dies because we don't know how to replenish its source. It dies of blindness and errors and betrayals. It dies of illness and wounds. It dies of weariness, of witherings, of tarnishings. Here's an exploration of the life of love and what can happen to love. Robert Heinlein, who is a fiction, a science fiction writer, puts, writes this, love is the condition in which the happiness of another person is essential to your own. It's a very profound statement from an unbeliever because we're made in the image of this God who loves and love has to be important to us. We know that for a child... Even the early months are absolutely essential in hearing the, uh, feeling the kisses and hugs and the whisperings and singings and, and speaking of a, of a mother and father to that child. We, we personally have seen the result of children in Russian orphanages that just in a few months were already withdrawn because nobody was hardly touching them. Love is absolutely essential to who we are. Lewis Erdrich writes this, Life will break you. Nobody can protect you from that. And living alone won't either, for solitude will also break you with its yearning. You have to love. You have to feel. It's the reason you're here on earth. This is an unbeliever, right? Okay, You're here to risk your heart. You're here to be swallowed up. So much like Jesus saying the seed has to be buried in the, in the dirt to bear fruit. You have to be swallowed up. And when it happens that you are broken or betrayed or left or hurt or death brushes near, let yourself sit by an apple tree and listen to the apples falling all around you in heaps, wasting their sweetness. Tell yourself you tasted as many as you could. The idea of loving lavishly, loving freely, loving recklessly in a sense, no matter how it hurts you, you know. And then I love this. This is really funny coming from the guy who thought up E equals MC squared, okay? Albert Einstein. This is just humorous, okay? Oh, well, I hope you think it's humorous. Um, any man who can drive safely while kissing a pretty girl is simply not giving the kiss the attention it deserves. I like that. <laughs> it's so funny coming from Einstein, you know. Here's another thing you need to know, you know, in addition to the theory of relativity. relativity. Well, here in Romans uh, 5, the, the real key to this whole passage is verse 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts. And that's what we're going to explore in each of these passages. It speaks to the central work of the Holy Spirit to convince us of the love that God has for us. And I hope this will be a, a comfort to us. It will be a, a further realization of the critical work of the Holy Spirit uh, in us. 
Here in Romans 5 up to this point, God has been explaining that we're justified by faith. That is, that we're made fully acceptable to God, not by anything that we have done, but only because of what Christ has done for us. We trust in what God has done for us, not in what he is, we have done for God. And so Paul says here, since we have been justified by faith, we have three things. The first, he says, is peace. Peace means wholeness and restoration, flourishing and abundance in the presence of God. Our life with God is like a full and ripe field of corn. That is peace or shalom. Second, he says we have access so that we stand in his grace. We have full interaction and intimacy with God. That's access so that now his favor is always upon us. His goodness constantly flows to us like waves on a seashore. So we have peace, we have this favor. And thirdly, he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This word rejoice has the idea of a confidence that makes us overjoyed. Like a kid really believing you when you say we're going to Disney World, right? (laughs) He becomes overjoyed because he doesn't think you're kidding. He really believes we're going to Disney World and it changes his little life in some ways, right? We're confident that in this restored relationship with God, that one day it will ultimately mean we'll see the breathtaking beauty and majesty of God. We believe that. And we believe that we will take on that beauty and majesty on a human scale. And so this this causes us to be overjoyed. We rejoice at the prospect of this glory of God, both encountered and manifested in our own life. And then he says, verse 3, the same word for rejoicing in uh, rejoicing the hope of the glory of God is also the word for rejoicing in sufferings. So he says, we have this confident joy even in suffering because suffering causes us to relentlessly believe in God's goodness Even in the face of extreme difficulty, that's endurance. And when we keep doing this, it becomes more and more part of our very character. And so joyful hope only increases in suffering for the believer. Interesting that we can rejoice even in our suffering because our hope will be increased. Then we get to our uh, verse He says, this hope does not put us to shame. There at the bottom of that paragraph. One translation has this. This hope is not a fantasy, right? Why will this hope hold good? Because God has brought his love home to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He makes his love real and vital to our hearts through the Holy Spirit is what Paul is saying. John Stott puts it this way. The Holy Spirit makes the love of God deeply and refreshingly real to us. That is encouraging that that's the very work of the Holy Spirit. The love of God has been poured forth from his own heart and it's found its way into our hearts. 
And it has a representative in our heart of the Holy Spirit. That's how concerned God is to make known his love to us. And this is the first mention of the Spirit's work in the book of Romans, the, his, his work uh, for a believer's heart. The very first thing, and here it is, he makes God's love known. Douglas Moo puts it this way, he brings about the inner subjective certainty that God does love us. And the deepest part of us, where our emotions are, where our motives are formed, he makes that love known to us. And it's, it's interesting to me that the, the word poured out is usually used of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Like in Acts 2, which comes from Joel 2, and etc. Again and again, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us. But isn't it interesting that Paul, in summarizing the Spirit being poured out in our hearts, says, in effect, here's what happened. The love of God was poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's how central this aspect of the Spirit's work is. This is what convinces us, you see, to put our lives in his hands. This is what convinces us to give ourselves up to his kind lordship. This is what compels us to risk everything for him because we're convinced of his love for us. Why else would you do such a thing? And so our hope, he's saying, is built upon God's love that we have deeply experienced. And by saying it's been poured out, he means there has been an abundant and extravagant diffusion of that love so that it captivates our hearts. It's a way of saying he lavishes us with his love, so plentiful that it fills our hearts, as Calvin says, comforting our hearts in sorrow, bringing the richness of his presence and favor in the midst of terrible loss. How concerned is God to make you know and taste his love? It's a central work of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 44, 3 says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And many commentators point out that here Paul is basically saying he has brought the cloudburst of his love into the parched countryside of our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the verb tense here indicates that this outpouring remains this constant fountain that nourishes us in the love of God and relieves us in the love of God. He has poured it out and is a present uh, It's a presence of pouring and continuing to pour forth for us. And then we might ask, well, what's the nature of this love that's poured out in our hearts? What does it look like? And that's what the rest of this passage tells us, that it is the kind of love that dies for us while we were still sinners, It's the kind of love that dies for the ungodly, that reconciles himself to us while we are enemies. That's the love that the Spirit convinces us of. It's the love that loved us when we were unlovely, completely unlovely. 
And we recognize, we recognize that, that you loved me while I was unlovely. And so it is a love that will assure you and comfort you in your gross failure and sin. When you're asking, how could I have done this? How could I have thought this? How could I have said this? How could I even be saved, we'll even ask, right? Frederick Godet, a couple of centuries ago, writes, The apprehension of divine wrath exists in the profound depths of man's heart. A trespass suffices to awaken it. Just one sin can awaken the sense of God's wrath. And God would comfort us and say, I loved you when you were completely against me. I will not reject you now. I loved you when you totally rejected me. I will not turn away from you now. And so he pours this love into our hearts that when I was an enemy and ungodly and weak and an utter sinner that he loved me and he will continue to love me now. He is helping you now to discover your own cancers, to discover the extent of your sickness, to discover the bones that need mending, the cuts and wounds and bruises that need healing. In all of this, he loves you in Christ Jesus. He loved you from the beginning. He loves you now in the discovery of those things. Your righteousness didn't get you acceptance with God, and your righteousness doesn't maintain your acceptance with God. This comes only through Christ. You have his his acceptance with the Father. His acceptance is your acceptance, and you stand in that acceptance as you grow and discover your own sinfulness and change. So you're loved by the Father, and this great part of the Holy Spirit's work is to continue to bring this home to your heart. And that's the point of Romans 8 as well. Let's read that now on page 8. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so he he, he says here, You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And he's talking about the fear of punishment. He didn't call you to have this nagging dread of facing punishment one day and judgment. Rather, he's given you this spirit of adoption so that you would have great confidence in your acceptance and your intimacy with God. And this poignant phrase, Abba, Father... This is exactly the phrase Jesus uses in Mark 14, 36, where he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will, when he was in the garden. Now, Mark and Paul could have translated this Aramaic word that Jesus spoke, Abba. It's a common word for a child addressing its father. And we understand that this was a shocking thing, this, uh, this kind of address to God. And 
he could have translated that straight into Greek and just have father, okay? Why didn't he do that? Why does he keep the Abba there? It seems to be that they never could get over the fact that he used that word. As though they're just so astonishing and they're telling you, he, he, he said, Abba. He said, Abba, to, to God. That's what he said. And then Paul, I mean, you might say, well, of course he's the eternal son of God. Why wouldn't he say Abba? He, he's always been the son of the father. But this is different, you see. This is a human being. When Jesus took upon himself flesh, now a human being was the perfect expression of sonship. The eternal son of God and his humanity provided in human form a case in point of sonship. Perfectly delighting and enjoying intimacy with his father as a human being. And in salvation, the Holy Spirit, as, as Jesus is in that relation to the Father, the Holy Spirit brings us into that relationship, joining us to Christ and his relationship as the perfect human being. And it's as though the Spirit says, say it. No, no. Go on. Say it. Yeah, just like your perfect Lord, yes, in spite of your sins. Yes, say it. I'm putting it in your heart. I'm putting it in your lips. Say it. I'll enable you to say it. Abba, Father. It's astounding. We should be astonished that Jesus could say it and did say it and that we can say it with him. And in the version of this in Galatians. He actually says, the Spirit enters our heart and says, Abba, Father. It's though the Spirit says, you can't say it by yourself. I'll say it for you. I'll say it in you. I'll enable you to say it and, be, and to feel it and to be comforted by it and to be relieved by it and to be overjoyed in it and to be strengthened in it and to be motivated by it. I will put it in your heart. Abba, Father. It's the Spirit's work. And so you see, this is so similar to chapter 5, verse 5. I'll pour out the love of God in your heart. He'll pour out the love of God in your heart. It's just a different way to say that. Uh, this sense of his being our Father and the sense of being loved are so close together. That's why in John Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he can say, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. See, the association of being children and being loved. And so these two passages indicate the work of the Holy Spirit in convincing us of that love. And then in this, fin in, in this final passage in Ephesians 3, we read this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And here's his prayer, that according to the riches of his glory, this means according to the full wealth of everything that God is, okay, the full unlimited capacity of God, that he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that, and this 
I think should be translated, that is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that Christ dwells in your heart through faith as the Spirit strengthens you and empowers you, that these are speaking of the same thing. Well, what's the point of this strengthening? So often we think, well, strengthen me against temptation, right? Strengthen me so that I can stand against sin. But notice the point of the strengthening so that you being rooted and grounded in love, and every commentator thinks this is the love of Christ's people, being rooted and grounded in this love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So draw that line from the the beginning to the end. He strengthened you with power so that together with God's people, you would know the love of Christ. This is a central prayer of Paul. This is a prayer to pray for yourself. It's a prayer to pray for the congregation, right? We can join in this prayer and say, Lord, strengthen us with power through your spirit in the inner man. In the deepest part of our lives, Manifest Christ dwelling in our hearts. Why would Christ dwell in our hearts except that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And notice that in knowing this love, it fills us with all the fullness of God. So that the fullness of God's presence in our lives, the the fullness of and manifestation of all that he is to us is accomplished by knowing the love of Christ. That's how central knowing this love is. Its end is that you could be filled to the fullness of God. All that God is might manifest itself in your life. It shows how critical this idea of the love of Christ And why Paul would say then in 2 Corinthians 5, as we've quoted so many times, it is that love that controls us now. It is that love that governs all that we do. And why John can say in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. As we understand this love, we in turn love others. What I'd like to close with some applications Uh, The first is right where we began, that God's love in uh, the Trinity, the eternal relationship that God has, must be and is a central part of what he's trying to accomplish in our lives. No surprise that in our leaving God, we fall into being bent upon ourselves and hurting And as we saw last week in Titus, hating and being hated by others, all right? That's that's what we've become, bent in on ourselves, unlike this God of love. So what is he going to restore to us? He's going to restore us to love, to what he is in his love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the manifestation of who he is as this God of love is at the heart of our salvation, and our transformation. But secondly, remember this. While we rest upon this objective work of Christ that takes away our sin and it's accomplished and we can trust that it's done for us, 
We mustn't ignore or downplay or even sometimes reject the inner work of the Spirit in us that is so important. The work of the cross must live in our hearts. See? It's not just this, okay, good, my sins are forgiven, that's taken care of, I'm going to heaven. It's the love of God that's revealed in that that affects my heart continually. That is alone the reason I can change as a human being. Alone the reason I will love people in any different way than I ever have. The work of the cross must live in our hearts and direct our hearts. The love of Christ must begin to control us. We haven't really understood the cross. It's not just an objective transaction that took care of something. It's the revelation of God's love for his people. And the Holy Spirit, you can see, is bent on convincing you of that love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, therefore, this will be one of the major battles of your life. It will be one of the major struggles of your life to be so rooted in this love, overjoyed in this love, refreshed in this love, comforted in this love, that you are continuing to change as a human being, to love those people that are closest to you, to love your neighbors, to love this world. The point of attack of Satan, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He's called the slanderer. And he will constantly accuse you that you cannot be loved by God. You are not loved by God. You're not good enough to be loved by God. How can anybody who fails like you and messes up like you be loved by God? How could you, after God has forgiven you, after Christ has died for you, and you've been a Christian for this many years, how could you do that? No way. He's done with you. Those will constantly be the attacks of the enemy to drive you away from being convinced of the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. That will be our struggle. It's interesting in Ephesians 6 when Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, every bit of it has to do with being convinced of our salvation believing in the righteousness of God, even the gospel. Sometimes it's been taken in a wrong way to say we have to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace as though we're to be equipped to speak the gospel. But those shoes that the Romans wore were defensive shoes, and he's talking about putting on the gospel and living out the gospel and believing the gospel to defend us against the arrows that will come against us from the enemy and he, he calls it a work of faith, a battle of faith, of believing in God's goodness and love for us. It will be a major struggle in our life. And so fourthly, expect the Spirit to bring this about in your heart. Expect Him to recover it to you when you've lost it. Expect it to restore, to restore you in it. Expect Him to maintain it and replenish it and cultivate it and grow it in your life. I don't mean demand it in a, in a, a, a terrible, you know, uh, presumptive way, but to expect it, to say, Lord, you've promised this. This is your work. And Lord, I'm lagging in this. I'm, I'm hurting here. I'm not convinced. I, I'm struggling. Oh, Lord, bring about the great work of the Spirit which you have promised, which Paul even prays for. I pray for that, Lord. I pray for what Paul prays for. We can expect this great work of the Spirit. 
And fifthly, I want to tie in with what Brian said earlier, that this enables us to be free in admitting our sin and confessing our sin to God. Part of an indication that you are free to confess your sin to God and to others. And when you've wronged another person, when you've been wrong in an argument in your marriage or your friendship, part of the way that you manifest that you are believing in the love of God is that you have the comfort and freedom to confess your sin and be reconciled to those who are in your family or friends. If you can't find the capacity for that reconciliation, somewhere there's a breakdown in your understanding of the love of God. And if we can't confess openly our sin before God, then we think, oh, to admit my sin or to talk about my sin would mean I would be rejected by God. But no, the Spirit is convincing you of the love of God that loved you when you were a sinner and an enemy and ungodly. That's the love that the Spirit wants to convince you of, not your made-up kind of love of God that depends on how good you are. That's not the love the Holy Spirit wants to convince you of. Maybe this the kind of love the enemy wants to convince you of, that it all depends upon you and not Jesus. But the love the Spirit convinces us of is this love that he, he died for ungodly people and he loves us even, he loved us even when we were sinners and continues to do so. And then finally, to realize, as I've already hinted at this, the connection between our own love for others and our understanding of God's love for us. I think, you know, the, the call of Scripture constantly is to love God and love others. That's the whole. That's in our very mission statement because it's, it's a transcript we think of what the Bible teaches. But then John gives us this wonderful key, right? We love because he first loved us. I believe that the Spirit works so hard, I put it that way, but he's so deliberate in convincing us of his love because he's so deliberate in making us loving people after the image of God. And to do this, he must do this. It will not happen outside of that. To be convinced more and more of God's love is to be free more and more to love other people. Because I come into grace an amalgam of selfishness and insecurity and fear and pride. I'm balled up. I'm turned in on myself. Self-promotion and self-protection mark me. And the Holy Spirit is unwinding this tightly ball self in sanctification. And he does it as more and more I'm convinced of this love. And it loosens me and it frees me. And I give more and more of myself to others that I was clinging to. And so in a disagreement or an argument with a spouse or whatever... I more quickly give up of myself and recognize my wrong because I'm more and more convinced of the love of God. That's the great work the Holy Spirit is doing in us so that we grow in transparency and honesty and vulnerability and openness and free, open kindness and goodness to others because we're tasting more and more and more of that by God and it's transforming us into the very image of God. And it really shows itself, doesn't it? When we love the ungodly, 
We love people who are hateful. We love people who reject us and despise us. Then we begin to look like God. That his love is really dwelling in our hearts and nourishing us to the point that we are copying his love and manifesting it in this world. Oh, Lord God, continue your great work in us. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you are rescuing us from sin, that you are rescuing us from ourself, rescuing us for love, rescuing us so that we can be a part of the light of this world, shining in the darkness. Thank you, Lord, that though there is still much darkness in us, we are no longer in the darkness. We are no longer a part of the darkness. We've been transferred out of that kingdom, that domain of darkness, into the kingdom of your dear son. That's the kingdom we belong to. That's the kingdom by which we're conforming our lives. We're taking on the character of that new life and that new world, that new creation. And that is the very character of God. Oh, Lord, continue to free us. Continue to convince us of your love. Continue to unball this tightly wound self that we have so that more and more we can love with the love that God has loved us. Amen.